0: Support for an honest account comes from Open Money, who are making financial advice affordable and accessible to everyone. Open Money offer personalised financial advice online by asking you a few questions and telling you about the next steps for your money. That could be working down debt, saving a cash buffer or investing. Then they give you the tools and advice to help you move forward with your finances through their app and online portal. If investing is the right move for you, they'll give you investment advice and the option to speak to a qualified financial advisor. You can begin with as little as £1. Their low annual fees means you can keep more of your money. You can download the app today or head to open-money.co.uk for more details. And please remember that with all investing, the value can go down as well as up. And thanks to Open Money. Welcome to An Honest Account, a podcast about how money affects our lives, our work, health, relationships and more. I'm Rachel Revis and today I'm talking to Bridie Jabour, the opinion editor at The Guardian Australia and the author of a novel called My Not-So-Functional Family. She recently wrote an article called Millennials at 31, Welcome to the Age of Misery. Bridie wrote about what she had observed amongst the people she knew, a distinct loss of ambition, career and life uncertainty, analysing whether we should be defined by our jobs or have children, if a house or certain neighbourhood would make us happy, all set against the cheery backdrop of the 2008 financial crash, the gig economy and a housing crisis. But it's not all doom and gloom. Our conversation took a hopeful and philosophical turn and I found it ultimately reassuring to know that our generation is going through it together. Thank you very much, Brady, for um, joining me from Australia to discuss an article which um, I read just before New Year. I read it and it was a bit of like a punch to the gut because it did resonate. um, And I strongly, I I will put the article in the show notes, strongly urge everyone to go read it if they haven't already. But it was one of those pieces that just seemed to circulate um, and it was, I mean... I don't want to do a bad job in summarising it, but it was all about how um, 31-year-olds are miserable and dealing dealing with um, all kinds of issues in life. Could you just do a better job than me at summarising it and the reaction to the piece and and what brought it about?
1: So it's, um, the piece was about how miserable 31-year-olds, which is, it's kind of a flippant way to put it and obviously the age ranges probably from, you know, 28, 29 up to mid-30s but 31 was a good thing, a good age to pick because I think it was after the thrill and the novelty of turning 30 that this certain type of misery sets in and I, uh, I had been noticing it amongst my circle without actually noticing it. And then it really crystallized for me when I went to dinner with a bunch of acquaintances. And I think it was, uh, you know, you, of course, you listen to your friends every day. But, you know, sometimes you listen better to people that you don't really know at a table. You know, you can hear your friends say the same things a million times and sympathize and empathize and have conversations. But it really strikes you when you hear a near stranger say similar things. And I was at this table, there was a group of it was for acquaintances that I went to university with 10 years ago, her birthday, her 31st birthday. And there was, I think there was about six of us and there was a divorced woman, a girl who, who was in a long-term relationship, um, another one who was trying for a baby, a married woman, and also another mother. And I just realised throughout the night more and more how melancholy all these women were for all different reasons that they were talking very frankly about their lives and it was a range of issues they were talking about uh, to do with whether or not they wanted a baby. That was a big one, making that decision, um, where they were in their lives and where they thought they would be in their lives at this age, which were not the same thing, uh, were not the same. They weren't where they thought they would be, you know, most of their parents by the time they're in their early 30s owned a house, an actual house, not just an apartment, but they owned owned a house, had a career, a job that they could see themselves being in for a couple of decades and obviously had children because they were their parents and um, were mostly married. And, you know, a lot of people at this table hadn't hit those milestones. And I think that that is definitely a characteristic of the millennial generation. It's hard to tick off the markers of adulthood now very hard to get into the property market isn't just unique to sydney we see it in london we see in in new york basically in every major western city, uh, city we have a housing crisis the gig economy also a global issue most of us are not in full-time jobs we're doing we're doing contract work or a couple of different jobs or have a hustle on the side, so very hard to get that economic security. Basically the only thing I think available to us to mark adulthood is marriage. That's why you still see people getting married, but they're obviously doing it later and obviously still costs money. So I, I listened to these conversations and once and coupled with all of that was I think the question starts hitting after 30, particularly for women for obvious reasons. Uh should I have a baby? And it's one of those decisions that It's a big one if you don't do it and it's a big one if you do do it. Like, you know, you can decide which city to live in and once you've made the decision, kind of forget about the city that you didn't move to and, you know, you decide to go in a certain degree at university and most people don't spend a lot of time justifying to other people why they didn't go for another degree but when it comes to kids, it's huge if you do it and huge if you don't. And uh, there are a lot of societal expectations around it. And also, you probably do spend a lot of time justifying either way to your parents, to your social circle, and to randoms in the street sometimes, if you're a woman, about whether you decided to have them or not. And so, and once I started, I noticed it at this conversation at dinner. And once I started thinking about it, I realized that uh, it was sort of ennui that a lot of my friends were experiencing as well. And I, I really think the career bit was is a huge thing for 31 year olds, people realizing that they're not where they thought they would be work-wise. And it feeds into all the other issues. You know, it can basically if you're not where you thought you would be in work and earning money, that can basically decide for you whether you're having a kid or not. Um, marriage obviously is a lot more up to chance. And also if you're not where you are when you thought you would have a kid, then Property is already hard enough to get into, but that's another big factor of whether you will own property or not. And so, once I thought, noticed what I thought was a bit of a trend, I, um, you know, just started talking more bluntly about it to my friends and realized there was a piece here <laughs> and decided to write it. Although it was funny how the piece was because I was noticing a trend. And of course, I'm part of this trend as well, but, um, you know, it wasn't a piece about me. And uh, a lot of people took it to be a piece just about me, actually. <laughs> yeah, I didn't see it as a very personal
0: piece in a way. I, I, I definitely read it as much more of a general malaise against you know in our generation. But I didn't actually think it you were talking that much about yourself,
1: which is interesting. I think that other millennials could see I wasn't just talking about me. It was mostly older people who said to me that they you know they thought it was all just about me.
0: I wonder though, because why? If it, if it is a problem, this kind of this feeling, if it is just specific to our generation because of things like the gig economy and, and the housing crisis. And it's funny how much obviously this podcast is all linked to money and how much money actually comes into this issue and whether because you do bring up in the piece about, you know, do cars and houses and having those assets actually make us happy. So although our parents and grandparents had those
1: things, more likely they had those things.
0: Were they any happier?
1: What do you think? I think that um, a quarter-ish life crisis, if we want to call it that, is not unique to millennials, but I think the age at which it is happening is unique to us. I think for boomers it probably happened in their early 20s, just before they were getting married and before they were having children and when they were just entering the workforce. I think that's when they would have had this sort of crisis because it's also a personal crisis. Thing. It's it's not just about all those material things I list, although they definitely make your life easier. It's a it's a personal reflection about what what kind of person am I going to be, and am I becoming the person that I want to be? That that is also very much at the center of this misery. And realizing, I and I touched on this in the piece, realizing that you're not that special. You know, it's I don't I think it's a very boring trope to say millennials are all spoiled and they were raised on participation awards and they think that they're so special. I don't think that that's true. Uh, I think that almost everyone is, secretly thinks that they are a bit special. Of course they do. Um, you are the protagonist of reality in, in your own world. So I think the crisis isn't unique to millennials, but what is unique about it is that boomers and Gen X had it probably a bit earlier. You know, boomers in their early 20s, Gen X probably in mid to late 20s. And then they got down to, in you know, quote unquote, the adult life And I think millennials, the 20s was very much an extended adolescence uh, with a lot more travel and a lot more study. You know, we're the most educated generation ever. And uh, I think that's why this crisis is happening in the early 30s. And I think because of that extended adolescence, you know, the hangover is a lot more severe.
0: Mm. But even though, even if we made a decision, if we were better at Every time I say we, I'm probably meaning I. (laughs) This is dangerous. (laughs) um, Just like me in the article. (laughs) But every time one makes a decision, one fears that another door has closed. And I have written about this before and I take great comfort in when Sylvia Plath talks about this feeling that there's figs on the tree and every time you... the longer you wait certain figs shrivel up and drop off the tree and it's just such a great metaphor for all you the doors that you feel are closing while you're still trying to figure out what you want and where you want to live and what you want to do and it's like on the one hand we can talk about the fact that things are exacerbated financially because of uncertainty and house the housing crisis but even if we again had all those things it's still not addressing, as you were saying, like the fundamental issues of who we want to be. And actually, maybe we're just commitment phobes. Like
1: we don't want to make a decision
0: because, and as I say, that closes off another option.
1: I think I think we're definitely drowning in choice. And I love the um, fig metaphor as well. I've I've actually written about that metaphor. Oh, have you? Of years ago. Yeah, it struck me so much. There's another um, metaphor that I read recently, and. I think it was Rebecca Solnit who used it but I may be wrong so you know don't don't take that as bible but she talk about she talked about waving your ship passing the other ship of your choices and being content with passing that ship and she was specifically talking about motherhood and um, you know deciding to be a mother and therefore waving to that ship that goes past that would have been your life as a child-free person, or deciding to be child-free and being content to watch that ship go past, so her her metaphor is a lot more about acceptance and Sylvia Plath's, because I think that Plath's was more about how much you freak out <laughs> as you're confronted with all these choices, and then you end up losing them anyway. But yeah, I think that is definitely, and I think that that is an age-old conundrum, and part and part of the crisis that was definitely experienced by the generations before us but in in another way you know we're drowning in a lot of choice some would say too you know a lot more choices than previous generations had for a lot of things but also our choices are a lot narrower you know for previous generations it could be where where am I going to live and you know which which house am I going to buy basically or where is my home going to be we are kind of having that taken away from us you know we we have to rent or but, you know, you'd just be happy where we can live, we're not getting that choice. And even the choice of career as well, I don't necessarily think that uh, we have the gig economy because millennials are commitment-phobes or people are worried about committing to a job. I think particularly in your, th- you might, maybe in your 20s you are happy with it, but I think particularly in your 30s you do want a stable job and you don't have the choice between uh, contract work and a full-time position. You just have a choice of which contract work you're going to take. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. Especially in our industry. (laughs) But tell me a bit more about this uh, distinct loss of ambition because that's definitely something that... I have felt in certain regards, even though I do regard myself as ambitious, but I wonder where the energy to achieve those ambitions goes sometimes. Like, if I haven't had a coffee, it goes out the window. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But it's definitely something that men and women my age and maybe a bit older have said to me. Like, they felt so much drive and focused on certain goals in their 20s. And then they get to a certain point and they think, Maybe it's just not as important, or maybe they just can't be bothered. But they've definitely felt it. Whereas in our society, is so geared to looking at those success stories and the people who, you know, get up at four a.m. and meditate and run a marathon
1: in the morning. We're so dri- we're f- so focused on Or those people who are lying in their <laughs> quizzes about what their average day looks like, or oh. they have lots and lots of money, and that's why they can make their average day look like tennis at five a.m. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, the loss of ambition I'm actually very keen to explore this more in my writing because that, that was a big part of the reaction to my piece and I got a massive reaction to this piece. I have emails and DMs from all over the world, mostly people um connecting with it, a few older people angry at me for thinking we were the first generation to experience it. But the loss of ambition isn't necessarily a bad thing. I didn't write about it as a negative thing. It was just another interesting part of the phenomenon that I was noticing is that people really did, they were still working hard, but their striving, striving, striving did seem to be tapering off. And part of that is reckoning with yourself, what kind of person do I want to be? Am I becoming the person that I want to be, which we've already touched on? And part of that is thinking, well, what do I want to be defined by? And I think that a lot of People realise they don't want to be defined by their work and I don't think it makes them work any less hard and there is still some ambition there but I think that people realise it isn't their job or their career that is going to fulfil their life and that, that's another, you know, easy cliche that it's about who loves you and the people you love but that's true. You have to be, you have to be happy outside of your job because, one, your job isn't going to last forever There is going to come a time when you do not have that job title, where you do not work for that organisation no matter how successful you are. And also, you know, your job doesn't care about you. Your job isn't going to, you know, kiss you goodnight. And I think not that many people are necessarily stupid enough to think that in their 20s, but I think that we think we're going to be a lot more fulfilled by our work and by our career and by achievements than... Uh, what we necessarily are. So I think the distinct loss of ambition is about working out what we want to be defined by and realising that it has to be more than work. And also you you do, by the time you're 31, usually achieve a few career goals, even if um you don't necessarily have the most stable work. And I think that when you do achieve things, you realise it doesn't make you as happy as what you imagine it would. I actually experienced that when I got my first book deal, which I'm obviously very happy about and was a thrilling time. And I was really happy at the time, but I discussed this with my friend who got a book deal about the same time. I I got the news and I was happy and then woke up exactly the same the next day. And it actually really surprised me. I thought that something bigger would shift When I was getting a book published or I actually probably did think it would make me happier. And while I was happy, it wasn't the book deal that made me happier or better or, you know, necessarily made the biggest change to me that I thought it was going to. And I think that that probably happens for quite a few uh, people in their 30s these days as well.
0: Mm. I haven't published a book but I imagine I would love to and I imagine if I did I would have a massive existential
1: crisis (laughs) I think I would I think I think I didn't have a a crisis but it was just part of your everyday life like you think that it's going to be massive 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 and instead it's just like oh I've got to finish this chapter and I'll hand in these edits and you know, I've handed it in. It's it wasn't a high. I didn't have a massive high like I thought. I was happy, but it wasn't this big high. I was happy in the way that you're happy when you know, I know a niece is. Oh no, you're probably happier when a niece is born. I shouldn't compare <laughs> it to that. But um, you know, I wasn't absolutely over the moon like I thought that I would be.
0: No, I can I can understand that.
1: So there's been quite a lot
0: recently about people realizing that we're being sold kind of something that's unrealistic and sold a lifestyle that's unachievable and just kind of being I think we are waking up a bit more generally about some of the cons that capitalism brings and the marketing that we're constantly being led to believe like selling us happiness I mean is this something at all you're you feel like you're seeing as well like we might still be suckers for it but at least we're waking up to it a little
1: bit more yeah I I I think that late capitalism is basically the structure upon which all of this disappointment and striving has been built. You know, the striving we have done in our 20s is because we've been told, it's capitalism that has told us that it would make us happier and earning money and, um, you know, it's late capitalism that has locked us out of being able to have a home and also some of us out of being able to have children, so I do think that it's at the root of a lot of this and it does go back to the things in our 20s that we thought would make us happy that don't necessarily make us happy and that is very much tied into ambition and work because it is like the capitalist structure that tells us the more successful we are in our jobs, the happier we will be. And It's just not true.
0: Mm. And, I mean, I don't know if you've watched the Goop show, I'm a bit obsessed with it at the moment, but um, Gwyneth Paltrow says something about optimising the self you know we've only got one chance at this life and we need to be making the most of it and that ties into the obsession we have about being productive and the guilt that so many of us feel when we're not being productive and we're not achieving certain things so how do we i'm not trying to pretend that you have all the answers to my my worries here but how do we escape that when we're so even if we're aware of it we're definitely very focused on Making the most out of every minute and kind of to-do lists and
1: I don't know. Doing uh tasks. Rachel well, here. Here's what you have to do to be happy. <laughs> yeah. i have got no idea. <laughs> uh no, that's absolutely true and very good points. And and that's another thing that you mentioned, Gia Tolentino, before. Another thing she writes about the self optimization. It is a very very difficult thing to opt out of, even and you know a lot a lot of stuff has been optimized. I think about this a lot, actually, how my uh, book reading has changed. And I'm actually, it's one of my resolutions this year trying to, that that I'm trying to change. But but this is a small example of how all that optimization and productivity works. I've always been a massive reader, loved reading, read purely for enjoyment. I was, you know, that kid that was caught up in bed at 1am by my very angry father, still not asleep because I was buried in some book. And I realized, I don't know when it started, but I realized last year that I was reading a lot of books to tick them off because I thought I should. And you would finish a book and you would put it on Goodreads and everyone could see that you had read that book and that you were now reading another one and they could see how quickly you were reading and that you were reading the right, in inverted commas, books. And and they were recent releases or classics or, you know, all those books that were supposed to have read or you post about it on Instagram. And I did used to do that quite a lot. I still do it a little bit, but nowhere near as much because I realized that this thing that I loved and that I was doing for myself for pure enjoyment had turned into a productivity thing where I was in still enjoying it, but had, having this need to tell everyone that I did it. And then I'd read so many books in the year and then I'd read these particular books. So, and I think that that's just an example of that of opting in or believing that optimization stuff without even realizing that you're doing it and taking things that you love and you actually enjoy and then turning them into something to be consumed by other people. So this year, I still post on Goodreads because I like to keep track, but it's more private. I don't write reviews and all that. And I don't uh, star a lot of books. And also my big thing is trying not to read new releases because I feel like I fell down this rabbit hole of, you know, reading the buzzy book of the moment and having to have read the book and had an opinion on that book. And so I'm trying to read a lot of books that um, aren't necessarily that popular or were published years and years ago and nobody is talking about anymore. And I think that that is probably the way to try. You're never going to solve this and you're never going to beat it and you're not the one in the wrong for still trying to optimise yourself and believing you should be productive. You know, it's the whole society structure and system that we live in. It's not the individual's fault. So that's always a good thing to remember.
0: That is very true. Just on the book thing, that's exactly the same realisation I've had in the past few months. I actually made a New Year's resolution to read a book a week. And then what was I doing? Like trying to desperately get through a, a book a week for the sake of doing that rather than for the sake of really enjoying each book.
1: Right. And so you could tell people that you'd done it as well. It wasn't, you weren't going to keep, keep it to yourself. Yeah. It's such a small example, but I think it can, re- it's a real illustration of where we are at with it. But, and also it's the way to try to solve it. If you recognize it and then you can do something about it, right. You can try to not opt in. You can try to opt out as much as you can, but you're never going to be able to opt out completely. So you can't beat yourself up for that.
0: Yeah, that's true. I need to stop tweeting about it. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) thanks for my book reading. So um, can we just talk a little bit more about um, having children inside of it? Because at the end of the article, you do say, you know, you have a child. I'm not suggesting for a minute that that's the solution. But could you talk a little bit about I don't know how personal you want to go, but you coming to that decision and how it's changed your life and how it influenced that article.
1: Well, I think that the crisis hit me a lot less hard than it's hit some of my friends because I have made that decision and the decision has been made and I can't take it back. And, you know, I'm very happy with that decision. He's the best. He's actually the funniest person I know. But uh, it, it's a big relief to actually make that. That's a big part of having the child. It, it's the relief of having made the decision that I can't take back. And I made it a little bit earlier than a lot of my peer groups. I was 29 when I had him. And so I think that I, I don't have to wrestle with that question. I had to wrestle a bit about whether I would have another one and, and – when but I think it's a much much bigger question for a lot of other people and you know it's a it's big whether they decide to do it or whether they don't but even a lot of my friends who are who say they don't want kids and who are child free they are still making the decision and and I'm not projecting that onto them they say that themselves I don't want to have kids but I want but is this the right decision am I making the right decision And you know they go to counseling and ask a lot of questions and they, and they're still working through it and I think that it's a question that a lot of people will spend, you know, years of their 30s trying to figure out and then wondering if they've done the right thing. And so when I had um my son, there were a few factors at play, but uh, one of them was I basically got sick of thinking about it. <laughs> and I just well, I just wanted to get it done. But my husband is a bit older than me, and that really was a big part of the part of the decision. So there were a few external factors. I had in my mind that I, I always—I'm the oldest of five children, and my father is one of six, and my mother is one of ten. So I come from a very big family. So I—I I always just—I always thought that I would have them, but I didn't feel maternal. I still really don't feel that maternal. I never had a longing for children, um, and it was sort of something that I would do down the track. But once those external factors came into play, I had to make the decision, um, and I did. And it was a great decision for me and I'm very lucky because of my big family. I have a lot of family support even though they don't live close by. But, you know, I did my wrestling with that when I was like 20, 26, 27, 28 and then made the decision and the decision cannot be made ba- taken back. It's been made. And so luckily, so I think I've had one of those, the biggest questions taken out of the equation for me, which makes life a lot easier for me so I don't have to spend time thinking about it, you know, for a lot of other people. It's, I think, one of the hardest decisions that you're going to make in your 30s and figuring out the right way to do it. And it can be difficult talking to friends about it when they're trying to decide to do it because he's definitely, my son has definitely made me happier and I'm so happy that I had him, but that might not necessarily work for all of my friends. You know, they're not going to have my exact kid. And, um, and I don't want to be part of this idea, this stupid idea that has existed in our society for a very long time that children are the answer and it's children that will make you happier it's part of you know a lot of other things in your life that will that'll make you happier or unhappier so
0: do you think that um generally speaking the financial aspect plays into people's uncertainty or do you think that's just
1: oh absolutely for sure it plays into uncertainty and one of the um benefits of been with a Gen X man is more financial security than my peers who are with other millennials. <laughs> you know, we're not loaded. We're, we're, we're not super rich, but it definitely takes some of the pressure off that a lot of my friends don't have. But I also think the like me having already made that decision and having the kid and knowing what my decision is made it a lot easier for me to write that article because I think it, it was one of the reasons that I could take a step back and really assess the whole wider situation going on for 31 year olds because I'm not right in the thick of it myself. You know I've been I've been there a bit and I definitely feel some of those issues but I'm sort of a little bit outside of it now. But there are lots of reasons people aren't having children. You know I I think that millennials are the most thoughtful about the decision that any generation has ever been and actually weighing it up uh for lifestyle reasons which is a perfectly leg- legitimate reason to not have a child, but I think finances plays into it a lot. Where are you going to put the child? Uh, You need a spare room in your house, which a lot of people, or your apartment, we have, you know, we live in an apartment, but um, like most people. But most millennials don't have the option of that spare room in the apartment. And so I I think the housing security plays hugely into the decision at the moment as well. And then career as well and career progression and particularly for the Mother, what's going to happen to your career and what's the best point in your career to have this child? And You know, thinking really, really properly about how your life is going to change, which is a good thing to be doing. Um, You mentioned earlier about
0: kind of um, negative stereotypes about millennials. I just want to revisit one. The whole avocado toast thing about how the lifestyles that millennials have, especially in cities, um, means that we don't have savings and we don't have houses. Do you think there is any ring of truth to this? Because I think um, people are always capable of spending to their means and being sold things that they don't need. And we can blame the economy for lots of things. But do you think that our generation has some issues when it
1: comes to financial and just general discipline? Not really. No, I don't think so. I um, I think the biggest issue is 30 years ago, I'm sure this is the same in London. It's definitely the case in Sydney. 30 years ago, you had to save up thirty dollars to $40,000 to buy a house. That was your 10% deposit. You know, it's three hundred dollars to $400,000. These days, you need probably $150,000 deposit to buy an apartment. Like you, Because know, you need 20% deposit now to do with lending and all that. And obviously, your mortgage repayments are going to be a lot more. And I think that's the biggest issue to do with Savings and financial management is how impossible it is to save that deposit. I think that a lot of millennials could probably manage those big mortgage repayments. You know, we manage big rents, but it's the it's the deposit that's really, really difficult and the deposit that blocks us, and you and it's almost impossible to save that much money. You know, it would take maybe almost 20 years, I guess, to, to just depending on your income, income and your job. So I don't think we're particularly wasteful. And, you know, I always think it's funny when boomers are wagging their fingers about all the travel that millennials do. Well, travel has never been cheaper. Travel is actually not a hugely expensive thing to do. And certainly you can wind it back if you want to save money. But not traveling is really going to save you, some people, just like a few grand a year. That's not what's going to get you a house or financial security. And also some of the biggest beneficiaries of this global cheap travel are boomers. They can't sit back and pretend that they're staying at home all day. They're a huge part of the travel market. And you know, and they've got all the iPhones as well and all the iPads and all the things that they say that we're wasting our money on. They're also massive consumers of. <laughs> so no, I, I don't think that we're particularly bad with our money. I think that we we are in a culture a more throwaway culture for sure, and a um, but also a culture where clothes and even white goods are not built the way that they used to be, not built to last. But the things that we're buying and throwing away while absolutely terrible for the environment are so much cheaper than what they were 30 years ago. As well. So I think it's it's a really difficult comparison to make about who which generation is better with their money and, and better with finances because it's just completely different economies that we're operating
0: in. 20%, I'm just kind of reeling at that as the size of that deposit because I mean in the UK as first time buyer you can put down 5%.
1: Oh, they they've introduced a thing here where you can put down 5% for $700,000 dollar apartments, but it's super super uncommon because we have to take out a thing called mortgage insurance as well, which makes it more expensive. But I think another thing that um, stops people buying with 5% deposits is how massive that makes the mortgage repayments. But most most people in Australia, I'd say when they buy, would have at least 10% deposit, but 20% is the goal and is what you need to not have to pay the mortgage insurance which is more money. Interesting. Are you guys still buying with 5% even with how high the prices are in London? Can people still afford to do that?
0: God knows. I mean, I haven't attempted it, <laughs> especially <laughs> not in London. Um, do you think that um, you mentioned at the beginning about this article being inspired by going to like, a birthday dinner with mostly women? Do you think this these issues are affecting men equally? And are they talking about it?
1: Yes. Maybe not talking about it as much, but I try to be careful in my article to say this is not female specific. And I just as many men are thinking about whether they should or shouldn't have children, they just don't have the biological deadline that we have. But yeah, I, it's dev- the misery, the uh, malaise, the questioning of yourself and of your career is definitely something across the genders and after that dinner with all the women I talked to a few men about it to see if it was gender specific and I really found that it was not gender specific it was across genders it was across race and it was across class as far as I could find.
0: Wow. But I wonder if men, yeah, as you said, maybe don't talk about it as as openly or as much.
1: Yeah, I think that the discussions, I don't think that they sit around talking. It's a bit cliche. It's a bit um, stereotyped. It's broad generalisation to say that, isn't it? But I do. When I asked them about it, they were very open, but I did not get the impression that they were talking to their friends as much about it as perhaps some women were, but they were certainly feeling it. And also in Australia, I think the 31-year-old thing happens. I'm not sure how the UK visas for English people in other countries work, but the 31-year-old thing happens because a lot of Australians can't get their, their two-year visa in the UK anymore after 31. So there goes another thing that they're not able to do, you know, not, not go and live overseas. They obviously can still live overseas, but England is a place where a lot of Aussies go and... Um, where it's easiest to get the visa. So that really makes a 31 a real cutoff for them as well. Oh, that is interesting. Yeah, and I had more than one person mention it to me too. People who didn't know each other mentioned to me, oh, I realised that I didn't, you know, in my 20s, I didn't want to go and live in England. So I didn't do it. But now I'm realising I've, you know, the choice of has been taken away from me now. I don't have that decision anymore in my 30s to make.
0: I guess this is not equivalent. But when you said that, for some reason, the young person's travel rail card in the UK sprung to mind so there's this big thing here about having your young person's rail card which originally was until 25 and then they extended it 26 to 30 so you lose it twice <laughs> and losing it the second time was really painful because obviously you get a third off your rail trains are really expensive in the UK um, so I could spend you know 150 pounds going from London to Edinburgh and back so, yeah, that was a symbol of youth. But I don't think it's quite the same thing. But I guess every country has their own. It's
1: their so funny experience. that your youth travel card went to 30.
0: <laughs> We're young at 30. We are young at 30. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to ask a bit about the concept of selling out, because, um, which is a negative phrase, but people use it. I have seen people, especially in my industry, hit, this kind of age and take a job they don't want to take because it pays more and they need the money, ironically, at a time when money means a lot less in their lives than it used to. do you, Are you seeing that too?
1: Yeah, but I don't think of it as selling out. I, could, I think of it as, um, you know, sometimes a really, really smart decision to take it. To, I think it's part of the realising that your career isn't going to make you happy and your job isn't going to make you happy. While you may have enjoyed your lower paying, unstable job in the media more, going and working in communications or, or whatever, that version of um, more money and more stability is, isn't is selling out, I think would be a very smart decision. And I've seen a few people do it here and be so much happier as well. Normal hours, more time for socialising, less financial stress. Why wouldn't you do it? There's nothing noble about working in our industry. <laughs> and why do you think being 30 was so much easier for people? Oh, because no, it was a novelty. We all had our parties, and I think that we all kind of deep down, even though we didn't say it out loud, thought, I'm just pretending to turn 30. I'm just pretending I'm an adult. I'm just pretending I'm 30. Look at me with this party and, and this milestone birthday. Isn't, isn't this just all such a bit of fun? And then you have your 31st birthday and you realise, shit, I am here. I am in my 30s. You know, my, my 20s are properly gone. This wasn't just a laugh time is passing how about that <laughs> that's very very
0: relatable and just one final thing I mean do you think that um obviously you talked about having a child and that certain element of indecision being taken away and now you're having to think about being asked about a second child which is interesting I guess it just the questioning from other people under yourself might never stop but do you think there's still other elements of uncertainty that come later on or do you think that's the main one do you still have personally or not do you think there's still uncertainties about career and about what are we going to do in retirement or do you think this is the absolute age and point which kind of personifies that uncertainty like
1: the main point in our lives oh I think there's uncertainty and Worry and concern, probably for the rest of our lives. I know the questioning of ourselves will probably be, be constant, but I saw Zadie Smith speak in Australia a couple of months ago and she was interviewed by this woman, very intelligent woman named Sasonki, on stage at the Opera House. And Sasonki, in passing, mentioned the freedom and the disappointment of your 40s. And it really, it really stopped and made me think. And I think that what we're experiencing now is disappointment and. We, and, and realising what we're disappointed with in our lives, which can sometimes be ourselves, but sometimes it's just a few aspects of our life that we're disappointed with. And that by the time we get to our 40s, we'll still be disappointed, but there will be a real freedom in it because we would have accepted it. So I think there is always this uncertainty and maybe always a degree of misery, but probably the way that we deal with it will change. Hopefully. It's what I've been promised.
0: <laughs> have you... Um, <coughs> Picked up any other positive things from other readers and um, who've yeah, readers who've read this article and got in touch with you.
1: Oh, actually I had the most lovely email from this woman who was in her 50s or 60s. She must have been in her 60s, because her children were my age, thanking me for writing it and saying that it really did capture how her sons were feeling at the moment and also that it does get better. <laughs> And she, she said, you, know, you learn to live with it and you do get happier and you, and you make some decisions that will make you very, very happy and maybe some other decisions that you'll question for the rest of your life. But she was very reassuring. Um, so, yeah, there were a couple. It was mainly the response was mainly from people my age, just saying that they, they felt it as well. But basically what I'm picking up is that we don't uh, solve our misery, but we learn to accept it. We, we learn a different way to be happy. I think, and if we live to eighty,
0: God willing, we'll look back and say, "Why were we so? Why were we so kind of? um, I don't know if self-absorbed is the right word, but so focused on
1: something." Yeah, no, there's definitely a level of self-absorption. It's fine to be self-absorbed sometimes, though, because part of being self self self-absorbed is reflection. And, uh, and, and that's a good thing but yeah maybe we pro- you're probably right we, we'll get to 80 and think I thought wait far too much about myself that might be another thing that resolves it as well we stop thinking about ourselves too much so much
0: yeah let's hope so that was very interesting thank you for providing what feels
1: a bit like a therapy session <laughs> <laughs> you're very welcome thank you so much for having me
0: Stay tuned for Hayley Millhouse, Head of Advisor Services at our sponsor Open Money, who gives some advice on how to sort out your financial affairs when you're not quite sure where you're at in life.
2: When I first joined Financial Services 17 years ago, the financial life cycle was still referred to as being a fluid movement through life. So job, get married, buy a house, have babies saving for children's education, and then retirement. The reality is, is that society has changed and life is not always as fluid as we anticipate or expect it to be. This has created freedom of choice with no typical right or wrong way to do things. However, with freedom brings uncertainty as we carve out our own destiny and make decisions on what we feel is right for us, not what society expects us to do. When faced with uncertainty, It's so important that we don't bury our head in the sand and it's never been more important that we set ourselves goals in order to move forward in life. It's no longer advisable to look at every life event separately and the reality is we have a lot of plates spinning. So setting goals can provide you with a purpose and a focus. It's important that we're deciding on your goals that they are realistic and achievable and they should also be adaptable if something unexpected happens. So some top tips keep on top of your finances. It's easy to spend what you earn and have very little to show for it at the end. You should save as much as you can afford regularly and saving small amounts can soon add up. Saving should be considered as part of your overall outgoings. Look at investment options for longer term goals, usually more than five years plus, and this should include saving for retirement. Your plan should be flexible And there are so many options available now for saving and investing, which means that you can change to meet your personal circumstances. So that means stopping, starting, changing amounts, which means that you can keep to your plan as much as possible. Yes, it is difficult, but it's not impossible.
0: Thank you so much for listening to An Honest Account. This one was pretty honest, probably too much for my end. I would really love it if you could leave a review, click subscribe, or give us a rating. If you have any thoughts or feedback, please get in touch, contact at anhonestaccount.co.uk we're also on Twitter at honest underscore account underscore. And thanks again to our wonderful sponsor, Open Money, and to Hayley Millhouse. Thanks for listening, and if you think someone would enjoy this episode or series, please share it with them. See you next time.